Hey everybody, welcome to A to Easy. My name is Harry. Hi, I'm Sally. And today we are going to be covering cardiology, and this is our second episode, and it's on pericarditis. So we're going to be talking about the pathophysiology briefly, the epidemiology, signs and symptoms, clinical presentation, and then onto the investigations and management of pericarditis. So, should we jump straight into it? Yeah, go on in. So, what is pericarditis, Harry? So, pericarditis is pericardial-itis. So, it's an inflammation of the pericardial sac or the pericardium. Those terms are basically interchangeable. And what that sac is, is a, is a layer around the heart. And it's made up of two actual distinct layers. Um, it has an outer fibrous layer and an inner serous layer. So, the reason I'm telling you this is because the outer layer resists expansion. So, that stops the heart overfilling, right? And the serous layer inside is made up of two sublayers which have fluid in between them. So, clinically, pericarditis is inflammation involving those two serous layers with that fluid, and that's called a pericardial effusion. But the inflammation itself can just cause swelling um, and cause problems. Swelling of the pericardial sac is, is, in short, what pericarditis is. Okay, so inflammation of the serous layers causes swelling and sometimes pericardial effusion. But what causes that inflammation to start with? The answer is lots of different things. Most of the time, nearly, we don't actually know, um, but we think it's probably an infectious cause. And the most common infectious cause that we can talk about is viral pericarditis. And you might want to know that the Coxsackie viruses are pretty common causes of pericarditis. However, you can also get bacterial causes. So that includes group A strep, so strep pyogenes. And the reason you might want to have heard of that bacteria is because it's the one involved in acute rheumatic fever. That is important because in acute rheumatic fever, you can get features of pericarditis. Moving on from viruses and from um, regular bacteria, we should also always talk about TB because in short, guys, TB is an answer to anything. It can do pretty much anything. And therefore, yes, you can get tuberculous pericarditis. So we've discussed Coxsackie virus, bacteria like group A strep. Those are generally your main infectious causes. However, there are some non-infectious causes. Ones you might want to know um, include autoimmune conditions. And the first one of that is SLE, so systemic lupus erythematosus. And the reason that can happen is because the body generates immune complexes, and those immune complexes get deposited around the body, including the pericardium. Other non-infective causes can include trauma, radiation, drug reactions, and following myocardial infarction. Now, the last one, following an MI, you might want to know about because it's called Dresler syndrome and it's a common thing that comes with SBAs and essentially the same pathophysiology of before. It's kind of autoimmune in nature is what we currently think and it's because there are these new antigens that are exposed during the heart inflammation of the MI and that exposure generates an immune response which generates inflammation at the pericardium. So Dresler syndrome, SLE, other autoimmune conditions you might also want to know that renal failure is a potential cause of pericarditis, and that's called uremic pericarditis, because if you have renal failure, you can't get rid of your urea. Your urea builds up in the body. It's a toxin which causes inflammation. So as you can see, all these things inevitably cause inflammation, regardless of whether it's a virus or whether it's an autoimmune condition. However, the majority of the time, we don't really know. We don't really get to the cause of it. Okay, so... My current consultant is all about the structuring. So if someone asked me what are the cause of pericarditis, I guess I could say we could structure it as idiopathic, infectious, and non-infectious. Mm -hmm. Under infectious, you have viral, such as Coxsackie, you have bacterial, such as group A strep, and you have TB, which is 
a mycobacterium. Under non-infectious, you could say there is autoimmune, which includes SLE and Dressler syndrome post-MI. You could say toxins, such as drugs or urea from renal failure. And you can also say trauma and radiation. And you would sound like a boss. Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty good. I would stop there and, you know, be very happy. <laughs> okay, great. Cool. Just, to, just to make sure I got everything out of that. that that's a lot of causes, but I like, I like being able to structure things. So structuring idiopathic, infectious, non-infectious, and then a breakdown of what that actually means too. So we've talked about pathophysiology, but who gets it? What patient picture am I looking at? So this is actually quite characteristic. It tends to be a disease of young people, again, and it's those people in their 20s to 50s. Um, so we are right in range. Uh, <laughs> Great. Enjoy that. And it includes men. So mainly me. So Yay. young men, 20s to 50s is your classic presentation, okay? But how do they present? What do they look like when they come in? So um, always think of Socrates because we talked about structuring. So you get this centralised some say retrosternal pain, so behind the sternum, and it can move, and it can move to the shoulder, trapezius ridge on one of the sides. And when they describe it, they describe it as a sharp pain, and it's worse on inspiration. So we call this a pleuritic chest pain. And you guys should know that there are the five Ps, which are your five Ps of pleuritic chest pain, and that includes pneumonia, pneumothorax, PE, pleural effusion, and of course, pericarditis. I didn't know that. You have never heard of that? I've not heard of that. That's oh, so it's, useful. Oh, it's gold. It's gold. I yeah, love this one. Okay. So, yeah, well, if you've got pleuritic chest pain, you just know to rattle through the signs and symptoms of those conditions. The reason pericarditis causes a pleuritic chest pain is because of that fibrous layer we mentioned earlier. That fibrous layer is continuous with the diaphragm, and therefore when you're breathing in and you move the diaphragm, changing positions, that causes irritation and essentially tugs on that fibrous layer, and that causes pain. So whenever you breathe in, you get pain. The other classic feature, which genuinely does happen in real life, is that these patients find relief when they're sitting up. So they'll always be sort of hunched over and not lying down flat in bed. And that is a mistake that I made because they often just never lie down. They might say to you, I can't lie flat. And you might think of certain other heart conditions that might mean you don't lie flat. But no, in a young chap, don't get confused. It's often entirely possible that if they're just sitting up, can't lie flat, that it's a sign of pericarditis. The reason that happens is, again, because what we just said before, because you're moving the mediastinum slightly further forward, it moves the shape of the diaphragm, and it reduces that irritation slightly, so it's better than other positions. And therefore, conversely, when you're moving around, irritating the diaphragm, that's also bad. So pain on movement, pain on inspiration. Acute pericarditis can actually last for several weeks, and so patients don't just present on the first day, funnily enough. They might present at any point during this. They might have several days' history of chest pain. They might have only one day of chest pain. So you guys are going to be re ready for that. The other thing to bear in mind is they might have some symptoms similar to sort of a viral prodrome, is the phrase we use. So um, your classic viral symptoms before the onset, and that's often in keeping with the really common viral cases of pericarditis. Okay, so these patients get chest pain, it might have been there for a few days, might have had a viral prodrome. This chest pain, it's pleuritic, and it's much worse when they're lying down. And that's why pericarditis is one of our five Ps of chest pain, which I've just heard about. Pneumonia, pneumothorax, P, pleural effusion, and pericarditis. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Uh, I'm glad I taught you something. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's what they tell you. What do you find on examination? Remember generally that these patients are well. They are young people with a often viral cause, so... It's not normally that depressing a picture on, on clinical examination. However, there are some things you really do want to look out for that help you get your diagnosis. When you look in the hands, they just might be tachycardic. 
And there are two reasons for that. It can just be due to pain, which is the thing people often forget, but also think about pathophysiology. The heart is in some way maybe being a little compressed. And if it's being compressed, it'll have a reduced stroke volume. And therefore to compensate with that, it will just increase the number of strokes it does to compensate for the loss of volume. So your heart beat will be faster and you will have tachycardia. Oh, that makes sense. That's so logical. Okay. I try. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing well. You're doing well. Um, the interesting part of your examination here is listening to the heart, really. So on auscultation, as you should always start by saying, you might find a subtle sign of there being muffling of heart sounds. And to me, heart sounds always sound muffled because I struggle to hear them. But um, if you're good on your heart sounds, you might find it harder to listen to them in a patient with pericarditis. And that is just because in between you, your stethoscope and the heart now, there is this new fluid filled space which is bigger than normal. And so you can struggle to hear through that. The second sign you might hear on auscultation is a pericardial rub, which is considered pathognomonic of pericarditis. It's described as sounding like someone's treading on snow and it happens during systole and diastole, so throughout the entire time. It's almost irrelevant to the heart sounds. I think it's quite a hard sound to pick up. It's quite low in pitch, remember that. Okay, so really helpful. These patients tend to be quite well, they tend to be tacky, might hear a muffling of the heart sounds and may hear this like walking on snow pericardial rub that's, yeah, really, really classic. Yeah, absolutely. And so the other thing to remember is because this is one of your pleuritic chest pain things, you need to investigate other causes of pleuritic chest pain. So when you're talking about clinical features and examination findings, you should also look for everything else. So, you know, if they've got a purulent cough, if they've got fevers, you you might think pneumonia. If they've got obvious risk factors like being on a long-haul flight, you might think about a PE. So don't forget those other things. Don't get tunnel visioned in, into pericarditis if they come with, with pleuritic chest pain because there's lots of serious differentials. Okay, but if a patient did come in and the collection of symptoms and signs does suggest pericarditis, how would you investigate them? Starting off bedside bloods imaging as our, as our routine, the bedside priority should be getting an ECG, okay? Because the ECG has some classic findings which will really help us diagnose them fully if you didn't pick up the pericardial rub, which I don't blame you. The, the classic two findings are one, saddle-shaped ST elevation. This is the more obvious finding. And it's ST elevation, just like you find in heart attacks, so it's very scary sounding, but it's saddle-shaped, which is slightly different. And the other key thing about it, it doesn't happen with one limb lead pattern. It happens globally, or it's, it's a generalized ST elevation across the ECG. Um, and I, I got um, pulled up on a reg because I couldn't name a generalized cause. I was panicking and I couldn't name a generalized cause of ST elevation. And they looked at me with pericarditis and I felt a fool very recently. So, <laughs> so don't, don't forget this, guys, okay? You need uh, it in final year two. <laughs> you need it in final year two. Um, so that's, that's sign one, and it's the really obvious one. But there's also one that will get extra brownie points and is actually more sensitive and more specific than ST elevation, and it is PR depression. So if your depression over the PR interval, it's lower than it should be, that is a better sign of pericarditis. So remember that, it's worth knowing. Yeah, I didn't know that either. You're, you're teaching me a lot, Harry. Yeah. It's good, it's good. <laughs> Moving on from bedside tests, let's look at um, our blood tests. Nothing's hugely helpful here, but you might want to think about an infective picture, which will classically cause elevated white cells, raised CRP is just a generalized inflammatory marker, so in pericarditis, it's probably going to be raised anyway. The other thing to bear in mind is if you are thinking it's a uremic cause, you really want to check your use and ease, check their renal function, check their urea. And then notably as well, if you're thinking this actually could be, a, could be a heart attack, if you do do a troponin anyway, it's probably going to be raised because that is just a marker of myocyte inflammation to heart cell inflammation. And that's definitely what pericarditis is in some way. It's inflammation of the heart, just the outer part. So um, those are some blood tests, not totally helpful. 
the next thing we might want to look at is imaging. A chest x-ray is commonly done. It is done to rule out other causes of pleuritic chest pain rather than rule in pericarditis. Generally, because the sac isn't grossly descended in pericarditis, you won't have any signs of it on chest x-ray. The next thing you might want to consider doing is an ultrasound of the heart or a um, transthoracic echocardiogram. They're usually requested. They might show a small pericardial effusion, but that's actually not that specific. There are also no great imaging tests, but cardiac MRI is considered the definitive one and it's particularly used in chronic pericarditis, which we'll talk about later. And how do you then treat this patient once you've done all of that? Well, treatment like the other structure is divided into conservative, medical and surgical. However, it's kind of short in pericarditis because conservatively you're just going to recommend that they avoid exercising, they avoid lying down, stop making it worse. But the, the truth of it is they've probably already been doing that and that's how you got it on history. Medical treatment, you might want to consider um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ibuprofen. And the gold standard treatment is with colchicine. Colchicine, okay. And yeah, so these patients are well, you tell them to go home, take NSAIDs, take colchicine. But are there any complications you should like safety net for before you let them go home? Yes, so there are two that I want you to know about. One is an acute problem, one is a chronic problem. So acutely, we've spoken about pericardial swelling, effusion. There's normally only about 50 ml of fluid inside the pericardial sac. However, it can expand to over a litre in cases of severe pericardial effusion, and that can happen in pericarditis. So it accumulates slowly. But once it's too much, that can literally compress the heart. And that's where all these problems come from. And if you're compressing the heart so much, the heart won't be able to beat anymore. You will end up with something called cardiac tamponade. That's a whole lecture unto itself. But cardiac tamponade is one of your cases of 4Hs and 4Ts in cardiac life support. And so therefore, what we want to know is it's reversible, which is great, because what you can do is something called a pericardiocentesis. That is, in short, a needle into the pericardium to drain the fluid and it's used in an emergency situation as life-saving treatment. That's all I want you to know. Pericarditis can acutely cause cardiac tamponade, which is treated in emergency using pericardiocentesis. Okay, really, really useful. And as you say, like links over into like A to E approach in emergency situations as well. Yeah, A to E. A to E. A to E. Oh my gosh, we oh. got it in. <laughs> That's um, the show's name. Oh um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. okay. But then what about, you said there was a chronic problem as well? Yes. So we've discussed cardiac tamponade. Let's discuss chronic problem. So the chronic problem I want you to be aware of is called constrictive pericarditis. And what that is, is when the inflammation has gone on for too long, it's not resolved, and you get fibrosis and calcification as part of that inflammatory change. So you get this weird shell of pericardium, which is not flexible. So the problem is it causes a reduced stroke volume and it creates a bottleneck. So think of it like a traffic jam. All the blood can't get into the heart anymore because of the compression and the traffic jam causes backup. And that backup happens through the vena cava and when you go up in the vena cava into superior vena cava, it'll go into the jugular vein and that will cause an increased JVP and inferiorly it'll cause congestion down to the portal circulation, so that will cause congestion in the liver, that's hepatomegaly, and then finally it'll just generally cause a backup, which will be peripheral edema. So that's all your right-sided heart failure features, and that's all you really need to remember, so constrictive pericarditis causes right-sided heart failure. Okay, so just to recap, the two main complications that we're worried about in pericarditis acutely is cardiac tamponade, for which we need a pericardiocentesis, and then chronically constricted pericarditis, which can lead to a right heart failure picture. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Look at us go. Wow. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Yvonne here with your 30 second summary. 
pericarditis is an inflammatory condition of the pericardial sac. The underlying cause is mainly idiopathic or viral. Pericarditis is common particularly in young men. Potential complications include cardiac tamponade. It presents with a pleuritic chest pain that is relieved by sitting forwards. On auscultation, you might notice a muffled heart sound or a pericardial rub. The first line investigation is an ECG which shows a widespread saddle-shaped ST elevation and PR depression. However, cardiac MRI is a gold standard for confirmation. Pericarditis is generally self-limiting, so minimal treatment is needed. Colchicine is a drug of choice. Do check the description for examples of ECGs and a pericardial rub. And thanks for listening.